0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Former U.S. Attorneys Generals Loretta Lynch and Alberto Gonzalez, the bipartisan co-chairs of a new report by the Council on Criminal Justice, joined the Post to discuss their proposals for criminal justice reform.
1: Good morning. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post, and welcome to Washington Post Live. The National Commission on COVID-19 and Criminal Justice is releasing releasing an important report today that assesses the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on the justice system. And here to talk about it are the co-chairs of that commission, two attorneys general from two different administrations. Loretta Lynch was the 83rd Attorney General of the United States during the Obama administration, Alberto Gonzalez was the 80th Attorney General of the United States during the George W. Bush administration. Judge Gonzalez, General Lynch, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good to be with you. Good morning. General Lynch, I will start with you, and then I would love for you to, to jump in as well. What was the specific mission of the National Commission?
0: This commission was designed to look at the impact of the COVID 19 crisis on the criminal justice system writ large. Our goal was to assess the impact and to look at policy recommendations that could be implemented both in the short term and over the long term to deal with the systemic issues that this pandemic has exposed in the system. Like the rest of society, we have seen the greater impact on people of color. We have seen the greater impact on people who are poor, because that's who tends to be overrepresented in our criminal justice system. we have also seen the impact on those who, all, who work in the criminal justice system, first responders, law enforcement. And we have seen the fallout on a national level from the varying degrees of effort that different jurisdictions took to manage this. So it was to assess the issue, look for specific policy recommendations that could be It could be rolled out on the short term by people who are truly struggling to deal with this pandemic in a way that's humane and efficient. And also look at longer term solutions to both how we manage pandemics in the system and how it intersects with so many other issues that the criminal justice system has been fighting for so long.
1: Well, Judge Gonzalez, you, uh, as a former attorney general, and also uh, as a judge, you are no stranger to the criminal justice system. I'm just wondering, as a co-chair of this national commission, did you learn anything that you didn't already know about the system, bo- uh, both in terms of of what it does well, but also in terms of its shortcomings? Well, obviously, based on my experience, uh, I had a certain
2: level of inform- a base of information, mm-hmm. but yes, there were things that I learned. I'm, I'd like to think that all the members of the 14 members of, of the commission, we, lo- we all learned something. Uh, we put together experts uh, in the law enforcement community, experts in the courts, experts in corrections, experts in the community-based organization world, and everyone came to this mission uh, with information and expertise, and so I certainly learned a lot about about the problems that exist. Uh, and as General Lynch indicated, we we do have some serious issues that were highlighted by by our uh, examination of the effect of COVID on our criminal justice system. And as General Lynch said, we we tackled this in two stages: the first stage with an interim report that we wanted to get out. We pushed hard to get it out. Uh, by October because we were worried about the surge that would occur mm-hmm. because of the winter and the holidays. And of course, now we're coming out with a sort of a long-term look at this problem. And uh, we're we're uh, very pleased with the work of the commission supported by a very able staff. And hopefully uh, this will provide a blueprint to improve our criminal justice system,
1: which I think is so
2: vitally important.
1: Mm-hmm. So let's talk about specifically why why have prisons seen surging coronavirus infections. Is it because of the close confinement or are there other issues at play here? Well, Uh, it's it's a combination of
0: things, but close confinement certainly is the most immediate issue just on a pure physical and public health uh, basis. It's the close confinement within institutions. It's also the close quarters uh, that people have to work in, in those institutions and the close contact that comes into play during the whole cycle of an individual's move through the system. From the arrest, they're in close contact with a variety of people, through the court system. As Judge Gonzalez noted, every aspect that we focused on, cops, courts, corrections, and community-based organizations, sees a concentrated touch, so to speak, on individuals through the system. But I think also what we have to face as we look at how COVID has devastated the criminal justice system, even if you just focus on the correctional system, has been uh, the variety of ways that different states and different correctional institutions have really struggled to deal with this challenge. And certainly the lack of a well thought out national plan to deal with this virus has really left many people, not just in the criminal justice system, but throughout society, trying to figure it out on their own. Now, they're all well-intentioned. They're all working literally around the clock and desperately hard to do this. But you have many different ways of managing an infection. When you see one, uh, one custodial system that has a system of isolation and treatment, and yet when people are transferred, from institution to institution they go into a different type of management of the risks um, you know you don't have a uniform way of managing this and frankly we've seen significant spread in correctional institutions because people are moving throughout the system and they're moving from from one type of management to another it also creates great stress you know we, we, we tend to think about We talk about the correctional system of the people, obviously, who are incarcerated there. But the people who work in the correctional system are are overwhelmed with this. They are working around the clock to try and contain this and manage this and prevent the spread. And so they could benefit from uniform national standards as to what helps and what doesn't help. You know, the time when the crisis hits, no one has the time. Um, to sit back and reflect. So our hope is that we can provide a a bedrock, uh, so to speak, of looking at this from a national perspective that will allow people to plan to manage the surges that we're seeing now and will likely continue to see, sadly, even with a vaccine. And when the next public health crisis hits, we'll let them have planned ways to do this. You know, what are the best practices? What institutions have dealt Mm -hmm. with this well? How can we spread that information around?
1: Judge Gonzalez, I saw you wanted to jump in on this as well. Well, this is a very
2: important issue. Obviously, our second recommendation was to rebalance uh, public health and public safety, and a big part of that is reducing density uh, in our correctional system. And so we we explored ways. Uh, you know, was it necessary uh, as a first step to lock people up in our jails? What about citations? Uh, you know. Uh, looking at looking at safety valves, which is very, very important. Uh, there are some people that are in our criminal justice system who have mental health issues. Perhaps a, a better uh, practice is to make sure they, they go to a mental health facility. Uh, many people in our criminal justice system have serious drug issues. And so perhaps a safety valve is to make sure they go in, into, you know, uh, a, a place where they can get those uh, drug problems resolved. And so, Reducing density at the front end, but also at the back end. If they're in prison, perhaps early release. And again, we're not talking about violent offenders. Uh, obviously, the public safety is paramount of concern for us. But but there are individuals that are in prison and have been in prison for a long time, and that perhaps that perhaps uh, early release might make sense depending on the circumstances. So it's all about reducing density uh, in terms of rebalancing public health and public safety.
1: I want to come back to this issue of, of reducing uh, density at the front end a little bit later in the conversation. But Judge Gonzalez, you know, you can't see it, but off to my right over here, I'm I'm watching live pictures of people getting the the, the frontline workers getting the vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine that's been rolling out since yesterday. Uh, in the country, and I would love for you to talk about or explain why the report proposes prioritizing incarcerated people and cor- and cor- correctional staff for coronavirus vaccine and PPE.
2: Well, in terms of people that are incarcerated, is because the level, the rate of uh, infection is so high, and they don't, they have no way to deal with it. Quite frankly, there's often a lack of information. A lack, a lack of uh, access to health professionals that, to help deal with the issue. And so they desperately need it. And we, we've seen a dramatic rise in the infection rate in the incarcerated population. And then, of course, as General Lynch indicated, you know, we have, we have so many people that, are, that work in the criminal justice system at the, within these various sectors that we've talked about. And, and obviously, they're dealing with inmates or they're dealing with people in the prison, in our prisons, the prison population. And if they have a higher rate of infection, then it means that our, that those who work in the criminal justice system are, are at greater risk. And, and that is why we propose uh, that these individuals uh, receive a priority in terms of vaccination.
1: General Lynch, did you want to um, jump in on, on that or can I ask you another question?
0: It, it's, it's up to you. There's, there's so many great topics here, but, but I, I concur with what Judge Gonzalez said. Um, and I think, frankly, um, to, keep it, to keep it very short and succinct, um, I recall hearing a few months ago, as we heard some of the stories of the fact that, unfortunately, we, we have had a number of children pass away from COVID-19, uh, one 12-year-old little girl was the daughter of a corrections officer. Now, we don't know for sure that, that um, her infection came through that route, but we certainly know that her collateral risk was increased because the risk to her parent was very, very high. And as we deal with a virus that, that knows no boundaries, that does not care about where you work or where you where you look like or what you look like or where you live, but just looks for a willing and vulnerable host, we have to keep in mind um, that to protect the most vulnerable members of our society, and that includes incarcerated individuals because of all the things we talked about in terms of density and different standards within the institutions, is to really increase protection for all of us.
1: You know, um, we've talked about this before on Washington Post Live. I've talked about it with um, some people, Holly Harris from the Justice Action Network uh, on my podcast, about um, the early release of Of people in correctional facilities, uh, because of the uh, because of the pandemic. And there's a lot of there's a lot of concern at that time about prisoners being released, being released re- released from jail and going back into communities. Both of you um, have been the top law enforcement officer of this nation. For a person who's watching and might feel concerned, about people being released from from correctional facilities because of the pandemic, allay their fears that um, this is a dangerous thing to do, uh, Judge Gonzalez. Well,
2: uh, as I said earlier, we're we're not talking about release. I've never considered uh, this uh, action uh, as being inconsistent with our notion of providing public safety. We're talking about the early release of individuals who have paid their debt to society, but uh, pose no danger to society if released. If we're talking about violent offenders, uh, I don't believe that that's something that I would support. I, I suspect General Lynch would would be in the same position. But there are some, there are people in our corrections institutions who would pose no danger to society, uh, depending on on the crime that they've. They've been convicted of, and so again, I, I want to reassure your, your viewers that that this again, this is about this is balancing public safety, mm-hmm. public health, without compromising. Either. Um,
1: so let's talk about that's the ba- that's the back end. Now let's talk about the front end because the way you talked about it, Judge Gonzalez, and the way that it's written here in in the report from the the pieces that I've been able to I've been able to read through very quickly. When I'm reading it, it sounds an awful lot like the rationale that has, unfortunately, from my perspective, been reduced to um, what people are looking at as, quote unquote, defund the police, when what really people are talking about um, is redirecting monies that go to the front end that you were talking about, Judge Gonzalez and moving them into other areas where they would be of better use. So, um, Judge, uh, General Lynch and Judge Gonzalez, I would love for you both to talk about why it's important for, um, for the criminal justice system to operate in a more rational way, in that, let's say, for instance, we've seen instances of, with pe- of people with, with mental health issues where the police are called when really a mental health professional should be the one who goes to the scene and deals with that situation. Uh, General General Lynch. You know, Jonathan, you,
0: you've hit the nail on the head and, and Judge Gonzalez expressed this so well earlier. We, Those of us who, who work in the criminal justice system have known for a long time that many of the people who move through that system are suffering from mental health issues as well as severe drug related and addiction issues that manifest themselves as criminal activity but are rooted in this kind of trauma that we're talking about. And no one is talking about not holding people accountable for the harms that they cause, but we are talking about what are the ways that we can actually keep individuals who are in the grip of this trauma safe from themselves and how do we keep society safe from the challenges that they they do cause and we've always known as well that our jails and our prisons right now have become this nation's largest mental health institutions. Mm-hmm. If you talk to anyone who works in that system, they've known this for a long time and they they know the challenges of it and they will step up and deal with that because that's what we've asked them to do, but they are they are fundamentally not suited for this role we we are leaving people in the lurch so to speak both those who are suffering from mental health issues and severe addiction and those whom we have tasked to to keep them incarcerated Um, Mm -hmm. and so this has led to a whole host of issues manifest itself via COVID with the increased density and increased numbers in our system but this but we've always sort of had this 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 play in the system that has let us continue to behave, to act in this way, to continue to use the criminal justice system to deal with issues, particularly of severe mental health, uh, and individuals who, in crisis, do act out uh, and do cause and do cause problems and, and cause harm. Um, so, not only it's it, and what we see is the intersection of this issue. Uh, not only would this do a great deal towards reducing density mm-hmm. in the criminal justice system, it would also provide true help and support for individuals who are suffering through some significant trauma. Um, it would allow law enforcement to step back from the role that they have taken on. That creates a great deal of tension in our society. The interaction between law enforcement and mentally disturbed individuals often leads to, to truly tragic outcomes harm or death of these individuals and these are situations where these are not the situations where we see you know a traffic stop gone bad this is the situation where a family member has called the police because they Mm -hmm. are literally at the end of their rope you know they're not able to handle the issues that the family member presents and they don't have anyone else to call and so what we've done is we've, we've told the police to manage this and they manage it by dealing with the threat that the person presents. And by then, you know, we've often lost that person. You know, we, we have another police shooting. We have a family torn apart. We have a community enraged. And it is has often been because we have used this one tool, law enforcement, to deal with a myriad of mm-hmm. issues. Um, so we have an opportunity to look at this and to seize, not just with in, in relation to COVID, but as we think about policing in this country, which we have to do. We have to do for racial justice issues. We have to do for public health issues. We have to do for budget issues. I mean, people are talking about defunding the police as a choice. It's about to happen as a matter of necessity because of the economic travails that so many municipalities find themselves in. But as we think about the larger issue of public safety in this country, how do we keep everyone safe, mm-hmm. including individuals who are suffering from trauma, particularly mental health trauma? We've got to figure out what do they really need? What's right. the best response? And how do we deploy that?
1: Judge Gonzalez, I see, I see you nodding, join in. Well, I, I think this the, the
2: phrase, defund the police, I think has become sort of an unnecessary distraction. Uh, I, I, we we need law enforcement. Um, I think every community wants the protection from law enforcement, but I think we all have to admit it's not it's imperfect, and there are mistakes that are being made. And I think moving money around within the criminal justice system just makes sense. I've said often, and I think General Lynch would agree. You know, we can't we can't uh, overcome the problems in our criminal justice system by incarcerating more people and by spending more money. It just, it doesn't work. We know that now, and we have to, just have to be smarter in the way that we allocate shrinking budgets because of COVID. I, I think the challenge is gonna be even greater for our political leaders in deciding the best way to provide um, safety for our communities in terms of health, but also safety with respect to law enforcement. So there's some very serious challenges that we've got to to deal with. And, you know, how we talk about this does make a difference as far as I'm concerned.
1: All right. So we've got 10 minutes left. and I'm going to use this time because there's a lot of news that both of you, um, I hope, will be able to to, uh, chime in on and talk about. There's a new attorney general who's going to be named. We don't know who that's going to be, be named by President-elect Joe Biden. I'm wondering, I'll start with you, Judge Gonzalez, how does the next attorney general reasserts the department's traditional independence from politics? Well, it starts with the White House, first of all. That, that relationship between
2: the president and the attorney general is so vital. And, and there has to be, you know, if, if I'm the new attorney general, I will have a, would have a very frank discussion with the president as it would happen at the, at the beginning of every administration in terms of, you know, what are the lines of communication? Typically, there would be limited communication between the White House and the Department of Justice with respect to investigations and prosecutions. Obviously, the Department of Justice, uh, the Attorney General is part of the president's team, part of the president's cabinet. One of the responsibilities of the Attorney General is to push forward the president's law enforcement policies and priorities but with respect to investigations and prosecutions. There ought to be a, a clear uh, line that should not be crossed, but that, that communication is clear. And then when the attorney general comes uh, in, in, into the, that building for the first time and in the weeks and months afterwards, they have a clear understanding with all the subordinates, both the political appointees and the career individuals, about expectations. And so uh, clear directives, I think, are very, very important from the attorney general from the very beginning. at the uh, com- and. But, but, of course, that begins at the White House and then mm-hmm. carries over to the Department of Justice.
1: Judge Gonzalez, one more question for you, because I'm just wondering, I mean, we've reported in the Washington Post about morale being very low at the Department of Justice. And I, I'm wondering, does the criticism of Attorney General Barr um, in terms of driving that low morale, is that warranted? Well,
2: I think, uh, I think the criticism of the Attorney General, and, and by the way, there's always gonna be criticism of the Attorney General, <laughs> because the Attorney General is involved in the most difficult controversial issue. So that happens all the time. How the Attorney General responds to that is vitally important, quite frankly. But yes, uh, but I, I do believe one of the responsibilities of the Attorney General is to protect the reputation of the Department of Justice, and that reputation is is important uh, to the uh, primarily the career individuals. We have to remember, I think that over 99% of the employees at the Department of Justice are not political appointees. They're career individuals who go to work every day, day in and day out on behalf of the American people to make sure that justice is achieved and delivered. And so uh, no question about it that the morale, you, you, listen, there's been a lot of criticism about the Department of Justice recently, but most of the criticism has been leveled at the senior levels of the department, the leadership, the political appointees, and not the career individuals. And so we need to remember that as you know, as as American citizens that day in and day out, the people of the Department of Justice report to work to make sure that justice mm-hmm. is served.
1: General Lynch, do you think the the president um elect should recommend a special counsel? Um, be appointed to make decisions regarding the Hunter Biden the Hunter Biden investigation um, that Hunter Biden um, um, announced was happening last week. Should that decision um, be made before he announces? President-elect Biden announces his pick for AG.
0: Well, a special counsel announcement has to come from the department itself, and so mm-hmm. I think it's probably more appropriate that uh, the president-elect set his Department of Justice leadership in place and empower them to make the independent decisions, as Judge Gonzalez noted, that I believe he intends for them to make, and I think that whomever he selects will make. So that's the question, the, the the question of whether or not a special counsel is appointed uh, is up to the attorney general, and there's a there's a, there's a confluence of factors that goes into that. Mm-hmm. As far as we know, all, all we know about this matter right now is what's been publicly reported, and it's being handled by a U.S. attorney's office, as is typical of most tax investigations. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, We're so right. far there's been unusual or nothing out of the ordinary that's at least in the public reporting about this matter sure. that, would lead to it being handled like any other tax case that any other office is scrutinizing. But again, that, that decision is going to come later, and the person making that decision, the new attorney general, will have much greater insight than all of us into sure. whether or not unique uh, situations that would call for that. I think we have to we have to really resist um, prejudging a number of cases, I and mean, that's always the challenge for the department. There's always a case that grabs the public attention. There's always, there's usually more than one. Um, And people are usually interested in in different cases for different reasons. Uh, There'll be other sensitive questions facing the department coming up. And I think we have to resist the urge to demand an immediate answer as to what are you gonna do about so-and-so or this issue or that issue? Because those decisions will be made, I believe, by an independent Department of Justice looking at the law looking at the facts and applying them and coming up with a, a straight middle-of-the-road decision. That's what I think we can expect from the Biden administration's Department of Justice. And I think we should let that play out. Now, that is often not satisfying people because they want an answer. <laughs> um, you know, they wanna they want talk about, they wanna dish about this. There's a, there's a famous name involved and they, and they wanna talk about it. And, and they say, but how can you not uh, advocate one way or the other? But the role of the Department of Justice right except in court, is not to advocate. It is is to investigate. It is to determine the law. It is to look at the facts, do a full and fair and independent investigation, and put those together and come to a conclusion as to the appropriate course of action. Um, And that's what people need to see. And I believe they will see that in a Biden Department of Justice.
1: Okay, Okay, so we've got less than... Go ahead. Yes, Judge Gonzalez, go
2: ahead. Well, I'm just going to say, I think one thing that may complicate this is whether or not an attorney general appointed by President Biden would be involved even in the decision about going forward in an investigation of Hunter Biden. It's very possible that you're gonna have uh, someone within the Department of Justice that will make that decision other than the attorney general because of a p- appearance of a conflict of interest. And so just, I just throw that out there to, for consideration.
1: Yeah, this is ringing very. Fam- <laughs> this is ringing very familiar. Back to <laughs> back to twenty sixteen, General Lynch. Um, we <laughs> literally are running out of time. But uh, Judge Gonzalez, I have to ask you. Um, President Trump has said many, many times, or it's at least it's been reported, he's considering preemptive, preemptively pardoning as many as twenty aides and associates before leaving office. Is this an appropriate use of the pardon power? Well, of course, we see uh, pardons at the end of every
2: administration. I mean that, that's something that historically has happened. Uh, you know that that'll be up to the president to decide, quite frankly. there's very <laughs> there are very little limitations with respect to the pardon power that's in our constitution. But so as to whether or not you know it's uh, one thing that I think I, that he should consider, and I know we're running out of time, is that if he's really thinking about running again in twenty twenty four how he exercises that pardon power may make a difference to some Americans. I would just throw that out.
1: Should he? What would it mean if the president of the United States pardoned himself? Is that even something he can do legally? Uh, it's
2: never been done before. It's never been tested in the courts. I'm I'm I happen to believe he can do so because there's no limitation in the Constitution, and, and clearly there's language in there that shows the framers knew how to limit the pardon power to federal offenses. Uh, but, but again, one major consideration, if I were the pre- President Trump, is what effect that might have with respect to his decision in 2024 mm. to, to seek re-election. To seek All election. right.
1: General Lynch, in 15 seconds, do you agree with Judge Gonzalez that President Trump has the—he can pardon himself? I think it's actually an open legal issue,
0: is is my view, and I think it, it, it requires further study. I think the issue of should he, um, I mean, the answer is clearly no, for many for the reasons that Judge Gonzalez stated, but also for the fact that, um, look, the, the pardon power is virtually mm-hmm. unlimited, but just because someone can do something doesn't mean that they should do it.
1: And uh, we're going to have to leave it there on that note. Judge Gonzalez, General Lynch, thank you both very much for coming to Washington Post Live. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank you, General Lynch.
1: Always. Thanks. Good to see you, Judge. And always thank you for tuning in. Join us later today at 2 p.m. Eastern time when my colleague Mary Jordan will lead a discussion about closing the racial wealth gap with prominent scholars. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for watching Washington Post Live.
0: Thanks for listening.